This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Ferro and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio alongside a Guy Johnson in the city. I'm Jonathan Farrow here in New York. It has just gone 5 p.m. at the close a little bit earlier on in Europe. The FTSE firmer by two-tenths of 1%. Gains across the United States, just incremental small gains. And cable, totally unchanged, Guy Johnson, in and around 1.30. Yeah, it's come up a little bit. Uh, in terms of recapping the news thus far, we're not going to have a vote today, but we are going to have a vote tomorrow on Boris Johnson's deal. Today was going to be a meaningful vote, basically a repeat of what we didn't quite get to over the weekend. Uh, but uh, tomorrow we're going to have a second reading vote on the withdrawal bill, uh, the WAB as it's being called. Uh, and we're also going to have an accelerated timeline vote as well tomorrow. So we'll talk about all of that in just a moment. Let's get some headlines now, John, with Charlie Pell. And I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Indeed, sterling trading near a five-month high. Amid speculation, Prime Minister Johnson will eventually be able to win parliamentary backing for his Brexit deal. The pound clinging to the dollar thirty mark, even as House of Commons Speaker John Burko rejected the government's attempt to bring the divorce agreement for debate Monday. Jaguar Land Rover will be idling its UK factories for a week in order to guard against supply chain disruption after the October 31st deadline for leaving the EU. The shutdown will go ahead whether the UK departs with a deal, crashes out without one, or secures another delay. And Britain is aging. Almost a third of the population is on course to be age 60 and over by the middle of the century, according to official projections. The numbers from the Office for National Statistics highlight the policy challenges facing the government whose state-funded health and social care budgets struggle to keep pace with improvements in life expectancy. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrell, back to you now in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much, sir. So let's begin with that top story, shall we? The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson may well be pleased. He may well have the numbers for his deal. The problem is he's not going to get the vote he wanted today. The UK Parliament Speaker John Burkow announced his decision to block votes on the Prime Minister's Brexit deal in the House of Commons. Today's motion is in substance the same as Saturday's motion, and the House has decided the matter. Today's circumstances are in substance the same as Saturday's circumstances. My ruling is therefore that the motion will not be debated today, as it would be repetitive and disorderly to do so. Speaker of the House there, John Bokov, just moments ago in London. Johnson now expected to push through a fast-tracking of the legislation as he battles to deliver Brexit before the October 31st deadline. Now, go, Guy, I have to wonder whether that is even a deadline anymore um, after the letters he sent to the EU over the weekend. I think it probably is. I think he probably, for political reasons, like to get it done. By then, we're going to get two votes tomorrow. One is going to be a second reading of the withdrawal bill. The other one is going to be uh, effectively a timeline bill uh, which will allow accelerated process in the House of Commons uh, to get this over the line. We're also going to have the Lords probably sitting next weekend to get that to happen. The sense at the moment is that he's probably got the deal, but it's going to be interesting tomorrow once they actually start opening this process up, unpacking 
the Brexit deal. It's going to be interesting to see what's actually included within it. The understanding is that it will be presented kind of eight, nine o'clock this evening, and then everybody's going to start going through this 100-plus document line by line to figure out what exactly it all says. Marcus Ashworth is here from Bloomberg Opinion. Let's get his opinion. He's He's got his hands in the air, and he believes finally that this Brexit process might be coming to an end. No, I was just cheering myself. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yes, well, I think uh, this is a case of cart before horse or horse before cart when you look at it. Normally you get the substance of the bill uh, voted in the sense like a finance bill that you're going to approve it and then get into the detail and amend it and, and improve it and send it to the Lords and committee stages and all that sort of fine parliamentary procedural stuff. Uh, this is the other way around, Curtis the Letwood Amendment. It doesn't mean necessarily that it won't all pass in time. Um, it's just more practical reality that uh, if any of the amendments that Labour are trying to get through, be it a customs union, which obviously would fundamentally and utterly change the whole nature of the deal, and indeed a second referendum, uh, the government will then pull it and then we are back to square one and then the government will try and get a, an election which probably the Labour Party will stop again, rinse, repeat, Groundhog Day, um, and then we go into an extension it becomes even more boring for everyone who's watching and listening. Got a little bit more clarity from the DUP today though, didn't we? Marcus, that the DUP won't be teaming up with Labour to put that additional amendment in there about the customs union. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put your house on that one. John. Interesting. Tell me more. Well, I just think they've got, they're not saying they won't, but they're not correctly confirming as far as I saw. 100%. There's, there's a lot of moving parts here and it depends on, on how things move. I, I would expect finally the DUP would, would probably fall in behind the government. It's, it suits them so much better. Um, but they are obviously holding out for if anything else can come their way before finally having to admit reality. You know, they do not have a, uh, a backing of more than, say, a third at best in Northern Ireland. They're trying to have a veto of everything. That isn't democratic in any uh, anyone's eyes. So they're trying their best to keep themselves as an entity alive. But it's, uh, you know, you could argue they may be better to accept what they can and, and, and live with it. Do you think Johnson gets this over the line? Yes, that doesn't necessarily mean it happens to his timetable, which is what he's all about. But but the reality throughout all of this, if you ignore actually Brexit completely, which if you're really looking at what's going on here, none of this has got to do with Brexit at all. None of these stupid amendments and I want this and I want no stop, no deal, and I want a second referendum and I want this. It's all about the next election. And as it stands, uh, the optics probably play still. Everything that goes on has been going on. Scottish courts... Rulings from here, left and right and centre, are probably paying into Boris's hands now. He has done the unthinkable, the, un, the unachievable, the, you know, that everyone thought he couldn't do. And he's now been frustrated by all different angles, by Burkhard again today. Um, people are saying, why can't you just allow a vote? The vote happens, it passes, we move on. But for whatever reason, actually correctly, under parliamentary convention, though that's not necessarily stopped him in the past, uh, Burko may have this time be right. But uh, nonetheless, it, the point is, is that all this plays into the polling for uh, Boris, probably for the next election, whenever Labour Party deem it um, acceptable to allow Do you to think, one. Marcus, that perhaps that is what has been in Prime Minister Johnson's favour over the last month or so, to get the whole Conservative Party on the side, including the ERG, that everyone has gone into campaign mode for the next election? That that yes. has kept everyone on the same side in a way that Prime Minister May just couldn't do. 
it, it's it's considered the OODA loop, which is Dominic Cummings uh, writ large, and the um, approach by uh, booting the 21 Tory Rebel Alliance out and then taking away the whip hand from the uh, Democratic Unionist DUP was all, they could see this coming. So by definition, they have enabled themselves to be not reliant on a majority, even though it was so minuscule as to be worthless. Why, why not throw that away and come at it in a uh, totally sort of binary sense? And, and that, therefore, as the DUP have finally found out, that was them in the crosshairs, and they've decided not to, not to fall in line. They're, they're fighting as, as they want. And this is all about one thing, and it's not really about Brexit. It's all about winning an election. So, yeah, everyone's playing the long game. The, the Labour Party are, are riven um, or wholeheartedly through because, in essence, you could argue that Corbyn wants to fight this next election, nothing to do with Brexit, but wants to fight it on his anti-austerity and, and uh, lots of exciting, uh, lovely, fluffy things he can, he can pull out the hat. Uh, and whereas the rest of the, the Labour Party are really looking forward to getting rid of him and, and, and fighting on something they believe on, um, perhaps rejoin the European Union. What goes on for Liberal Democrats post uh, any Brexit deal is is an extensionist question. Do they exist? Do they need to exist you know, if on their revoke? And uh, the Brexit Party, you could say the same, same thing about Oh, completely. They're, 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 they're gone. Marcus is going to stay with us. Uh, you are listening to The Cable. We're trying to figure out what happens next this week with this Brexit process. Plenty of twists and turns, I suspect, still yet to come. This is Blimbo. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. You are listening to myself, Guy Johnson, and John Farrow over in New York. We're joined in the studio by Marcus Ashworth to give us his take on what is happening here. Marcus, we traded through 130 a little bit earlier on on cable. We're currently trading just a little south of that, 129. Just walk us through kind of what happens now. So there seems to be a fairly easy move, according to most FX analysts, up to around 135. But there is a longer-term story here, which is no deal Brexit is not completely removed. I, in a year's time, when we when we get through the uh, withdrawal process, you could still have a of a hard Brexit. Just give us a sort of more medium-term view of what happens with UK assets. Right. Well, you can see, if you look at certain stocks, uh, let's say Lloyds Bank, which is a classic one. It's got um, the largest chunk of the mortgage market, a uh, big chunk of the credit card market. It is a very exposed bet to the domestic for- fortunes of uh, the U- UK consumer. Uh, that's up um, quite a bit since uh, probably 10% or so since um, all this sort of stuff started getting excited, you know, akin to the, the rise in sterling. So clearly there are bets being put on on, on UK PLC. Um, people think long term that sterling is cheap if a Brexit deal gets done um, and and or even if it remains or even a second referendum. But the fact that no deal essentially is, is it looks like it's getting more and more priced out. I would argue there is still a risk, quite a quite a present risk, actually, the way the, the parliament's going. But I, I think even in a no deal scenario, uh, it's evident now with an EU deal on the table, even though it's not ratified quite how it should be. In the worst-case scenario, there was a so-called crash-out. I don't think that the downside is anything like what it was because Boris is now on the table with them. There will be a series of mini-deals. But that is still a pretty remote possibility, and therefore the market is doing the right thing and pricing sterling into a context whereby it's more like a deal is going to happen than not. But um, 
we are not going to go back up to levels we were in 2016 because the economy is not as strong as it was, and more importantly, nor is the world economy. The Brexit bounce you may have got, you know, expecting a deal is not going to happen or not be anywhere like as strong as it, as it might have been um, or seemed like it could have been a, few, a couple of years ago. So we're in a situation we still have the trade deal to sort out. That could go very one way or the other. Um, and we have you know, the question whether foreign direct investment will come back into the UK. Um, there's going to be a lot of, of fiscal spending probably from a new uh, Boris Johnson government if he were to gain power properly. And even if he wasn't, it's likely that any new government would, would, would be a, a, a definitely a fiscal expansion one. So there are ways and means of expecting the economy to do probably quite well. Guilt yields will probably almost certainly rise. You lose that safe haven. You see extra guilt issuance. Um, and, and possibly you see a uh, better risk of inflation. So I don't think it's bond-friendly. Equity-friendly, probably. We know FTSE's hard one to read because it's got so many foreign companies earning foreign earnings as well. But nonetheless, I think UK PLC assets-wise... Uh, property will rise, and sterling is probably the best barometer. And I think very much always should look at dollar sterling because it's far more liquid than even euro sterling. Which well, let's talk about that, Marcus, because I actually think cable is a really, really tough call right now. So the highs post-referendum are basically 140, pushing 145 in spring of 18. The problem with the spring of 18 is that that was when we had significant dollar weakness off the back of 2017. And then the dollar strength really started to come through again. So I think if you want to make the call that we go to 140 on cable, I think you've got to make a broader dollar call as well, haven't you? Absolutely. And that's why I don't think I've written a couple of pieces on sterling in the last couple of days. And, um, you know, I'm trying to be sort of, look, it's probably sterling positive, but there isn't as much upside as there might well have been. And, and I think we might get into 130s, mid 130s and have a think again, because it really depends then on very much on how the... Uh, forward trade agreements uh, work out and whether or not we get through this nonsense and it actually gets a deal and then we also have an election to get through and the, the post-election let's ex- expect a deal gets done let's expect there's a, a there's a, a conservative government which are both the most logical things where do we think sterling will be we're higher than we are now but not necessarily a lot higher uh, yep. because we have a, we have the deal to do the eu and that really is the biggest thing i also don't expect Sterling uh, to have any support from rate hikes because I don't think the bank can do it. Okay, not back to those kind of just shy of 150 levels we've got around the referendum. Marcus is going to stick with us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good news. The President of the United States says the deal with China is coming along very well. Even better news, over the weekend, the chief trade negotiator for the Chinese acknowledged the talks were actually happening and they were working towards an agreement. They're using the word agreement now, phase one deal. That's the good news, that maybe we'll have a trade truce. The December tariff hike is still on the table. Larry Kudlow was speaking to Fox this morning. He spoke to Fox News and he told them that perhaps that could come off. That's better news. I guess, Guy... The conversation we've got to have is whether we need the December tariff hikes to come off the table completely or whether we need to start thinking about removing the previous round of tariffs to have any real impact on the global economy and therefore global markets because we've seen this story play out many yeah. times before. Do you, do you need I, So if we get a truce, is that enough to restore confidence that people start making investment decisions? Or do you actually need to roll back some of these sanctions in order... Sorry, ta- I keep doing this. In tariffs in order... Uh, for there to be some sort of progress in in for the for the global economy, I think that's a question that's very hard 
to figure out right now. Marcus, what's your take on that? Do we need, do we need, is status quo enough or is de-escalation required in order for some of these manufacturing numbers to turn around? Uh, I think we've pushed it too far. And in a sense, I think manufacturing is on, on a downtrend. And I think it needs to right-size itself in a systematic way. Um, I think everyone points to the trade uh, wars, um, which they're not really. They're just a bit of a skirmish um, as being the excuse for everything. But the fundamental reality is that Germany has got a major uh, problem with its, with its business model. Uh, China has gone on a capex downturn. It doesn't need Germany as much. It can yeah. now create uh, an awful lot of its OEM itself, its original uh, manufacturing. He can do an awful lot more um, without requiring quite the expertise that it once did. And that is a real problem because the uh, home market for Germany, which is the EU, is is, is flatlining at best. Um, you have a situation whereby the US is about to go into battle with them, probably on the tariff wars, if you want to call that, on, on autos in the next month, I believe. So there's no an obvious market to all of a sudden pick up there. So they need China to recover. China seems to be very chill about taking its GDP down to five and probably five, sorry, six and probably five and a half percent this time next year. Uh, for them, it's all about creating 10 million jobs a year. They're happy letting the currency just ever so slightly rise, about five to ten percent each year. And, and keeping things on the download to, to yep. calm their market down. And that's a real problem for manufacturing globally, which means, therefore, what does is required to get the world back into the place it was where well, you need all these sanctions to go away, tariffs to go away. You, okay. need, you need love. You need, you need love. love. John, I was listening to you talking to Mohamed Alerian earlier on. He thinks like, there's a solid recession coming next year for Europe, led by Germany. Yeah, still speed this year for the European economy. And to be fair to Mohamed, he was calling for this. Last year, when President oh. Draghi was at the ECB, saying that this would be a soft patch we'd work through, he said it's going to get worse, we'll drop to stall speed, we have. He's now calling for a Eurozone recession next year. Look, this is worrying stuff, because I have no idea what the policy response looks like from Europe. Uh, we know what we'd like them to do. I don't know if the Germans will follow through on it. And the data, the latest data in the global economy, Marcus, did you see the Japanese trade numbers, the South Korean trade South numbers? South Korean numbers. I yeah, did. I'm really just... not pretty. I'm slightly uh, excited the fact that the only person I knew who called a recession in Germany was me last year. Well, Marcus, will, come on. We, we, we've my talking hat about to, Mohammed, and now we're talking about you. My, my Big Mo, I'll give him his due. He does know his stuff. And all I can say is that I bet I called it by a day earlier than him. No, I seriously, have no I doubt mean, that's I com- true. <laughs> I, I completely agree with, with well, that rationale. And I think it's going to be led by Germany and it's going to be a rather rude awakening for Europe. I hope that they – there are some signs, actually, if you look through into the money show, that that fact – Things aren't quite as bad as it may seem in Europe, and there is a chance for a bit of a turnaround. So I think we may see a shallow recession. I don't think we're seeing, we're talking... In, a shallow problem. recession in Germany or a shallow recession in Europe? Well, Germany, which then tips over to the rest of Europe. But, but yeah. Germany only has a shallow recession. Um, it comes out, it goes in it first, it goes in its hardest, and it comes out of its strongest. That's the classic way. It has a V, the rest of Europe has a U. And... How wide is that U? How wide is that V? It catches pretty much most of Europe, I think. Yeah, I mean, in be... terms of timeline, do you think? Do you think like, how quick is the recovery? Well, I think Germany's in recession now, so that's okay. the one thing I do. I, mean, he's, I called six to nine months well, a year ago. I think Germany would be in recession, and I think it is already in recession. I think Italy's very close behind it. I think the rest of Europe will follow sometime early part next year. What's the market called that complements that economic analysis? Euro dollar right now one eleven fifty five. Where are you looking to express that view? In the bond market, in foreign exchange, through equities? What would you be doing? Oh, well, equities is uh, <laughs> try and sell into a whole of, you know, try and sell some German banks there. Yeah, best of luck. Um, I mean, I think 
the European stock market, you just have to look at it and realise that it, it knows it has seen this one coming or just there is no no risk appetite to, to buy the bounce. It's cheap, it's a, it's a, but it's a value trap. And bonds, I think it's a fascinating thing what's happened to the ECB. They have cut rates, yes? Do you remember they cut rates? What has been the reaction of the bond market is that they hike rates because they did this thing called tiering. And actually found an awful 800 billion euros has come off negative 40 and gone up towards zero. The net effect of what the what Draghi did on September 12th was actually a massive stimulus in a weird way. Ironically, what I've been calling for, though he did it the completely different way around. Um, and I wonder if, if the ECB knows what they've done, because I think we'll find out when the start of the next maintenance period, which is October 30th, when this comes into effect, this, this tiering, quite what dislocation is going to be. Because it makes no sense to buy short-ended uh, BTPs or, or, or weaker uh, European credits when you can put it on cash and get the same yield. So there's going to be a big sell-off, I think, in the front end of, of, of certainly Italy, possibly Portugal, one or two others. But the reality here is that front-end bond yields are, have okay. weakened and are going to go higher. Do you think Draghi's, at the end of his term, got a grip on the dissent that's been in the central bank over the last few weeks? And, and if not, if it carries on, do you think that the ECB is capable of doing more? Um, the ECB is capable of doing more. I think he wants to get out of Dodge as quick as he possibly can because it's not his problem. And he's tried his best, and I think he's he's tried to create this legacy, but the reality is he's handed across to Madame Lagarde a, a nightmare because, simply put, as we were just talking, Europe is, and is probably going into recession or is certainly very close to one, and that is a very difficult time to take over a central bank. The final word at the final meeting of President Draghi coming up this Thursday at the ECB. Marcus Ashworth, thank you, sir. We will acknowledge your great calls again in the future, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll continue the conversation. The Fed blackout period has started. The Fed decision is next week. They had the final word on Friday and did nothing to reshape rate cut expectations. We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later on the programme. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. John Farrow apparently is over in New York. He's going to be joined by Charlie Pellet shortly. Charlie's here for the headlines. He's here for the music. (laughs) 129.89 is what The Cable Rate is currently saying, Charlie Pellet. Tell me everything. Uh, Let us begin. Let's cut right to the chase. We begin with Brexit. Boris Johnson thwarted in his latest attempt to get his Brexit deal approved in Parliament. Another blow to take his effort, in his effort, to take the UK out of the European Union in 10 days' time. House of Commons Speaker John Burko rejecting the government's bid to trigger a second parliamentary vote on the Brexit deal the Prime Minister secured last week in Brussels. Deutsche Bank is considering substantial cuts to the unit that trades interest rate securities, a division that survived a large-scale pullback as part of the lender's sweeping revamp in July. Boeing shares are lower in the U.S. by more than 3%, extending the previous session's sharp drop after the plane maker received at least three analyst downgrades on increased risk relating to the company's best-selling 737 MAX jet. The moves follow reports that a pilot working on the 737 during its certification expressed concern about a feature that was subsequently implicated in two fatal crashes. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrow, back to you now in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you, sir. When you walk into a party, is that what they play? 
Who, for me? Come on, Eileen. Is that what they play? I don't think anybody plays music when I walk into a To tell you a really funny story, when when I first started doing um, Bloomberg Surveillance with Tom Keane, for whatever reason, and I to this day don't remember why this was a story or was even a thing, Toto Africa was our song for Bloomberg Surveillance, and (laughs) randomly Tom would just play Toto Africa. And about a year later, Tom moved into my building, and we lived together for a little while, and when he walked into the, the building's barbecue, basically we'd have an end of summer barbecue. And Tom walked into the barbecue from out of the building into the barbecue. And the DJ, I'm not even making this up, he walks out and Toto Africa comes on. And we both just started crying. It was so funny. So well, I'm just wondering if the same thing happens to you every time you go somewhere. Do they start playing Come on, Eileen? No, but I'm just wondering what's the song they would play or should play when you walk into the room? Have you given that any thought? I've never given that any thought. Does Peaky Blinders have a theme song? They do. They do. Would this be my song? No, that's Tom. This is Tom. This is Tom. This is Tom. And and work out what the connection is between between John Farrow, Tom Keane, and Africa. Well, well, let me let me just toss in the Peaky Blinders reference because we were discussing Halloween outfits, and not to give anything away, and I don't know if he wants to or not, but. uh, one of the members of the staff was considering going as Peaky Blinders. I am going, I'm going as a member of Peaky Blinders. Peaky I'm happy, I'm happy, so, so John Farrow has been fully indoctrinated into the what Halloween is in the United States, yeah. which is just basically so, dress up as whoever you want. Basically, I hadn't dressed up, I think, for about 30 years. Um, I've always hated Halloween um, from the moment I was tiny and, and never wanted to dress up. So as soon as I guess I had the strength but, to, to shake off clothes, I was refusing to dress but, up. But in but in in this part of the world, there isn't this kind of. I think you this, can is, dress the, up this as is the Peaky you Blinders want. theme tune. Yeah, very. That's cool. some good producing. Very cool. No, yeah, you can dress up what, as whatever you want. I mean, they're saying to me, guy, that no one here will know what Peaky Blinders is. But to be honest with you, I think actually lots of people do watch it over here now, and, and I don't really care if no one knows who I am. Makes you different. Uh, Guy, what are you going to go as for Halloween? I'm going to follow my children around as they dress up in their usual sort of werewolf. Oh, they go as werewolves. Kind of, <laughs> sort of outfits and, and go and terrorize the neighbors. Fair enough. Um, because, it's, it's still because 10 that's, days because, away. Yeah, it's my son's birthday, actually. Oh, oh is it? That's and, exciting. And it's potentially Brexit as well. So it's, it's, it's all happening. And it's the BOJ meeting. There's a lot of things going on there that, is a, day. that is There is a lot going on at the end of the month. I've got a great one for Luke Cowart. On one, one fr- at the front of the T-shirt, if you go as Dow Points, and at the back, if you go as the Vixen, Vixen Percentage, percent, yeah. I think that, that'll scare everyone. <laughs> that'll scare, just walk around Wall Street and, and make everyone really frightened. I think I'm just going to put on my I've got a, a Grinch suit for Christmas and now I can just kill two birds with one stone that's and go awesome. Halloween as the Grinch nice. and also Christmas as the Grinch. So that's that's probably my plan. We'll have this chat in 10 days. Um, Charlie, great to see you. You too, mate. We'll catch you uh, do we tomorrow. Do we play out your song as you leave? No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm trying to divorce myself from that song. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. I don't think that's going to happen. Cheers, mate. The Federal Reserve, the blackout period has started. The final word was on Friday. They had the opportunity to push back against rate cut expectations. I don't think the likes of Vice Chair Rich Clarida really took it. The rate cut very much firmly on the table, Luke, at the end of this month. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's going to happen because if they it wasn't going to happen, they would have told us already that, uh, you know, we're over our skis on this. One cautionary note I'd, note I'd raise in regards to pricing, uh, market implied pricing of the Fed cut. 
The idea that it moved a lot on Friday is probably incorrect. The The thing that happened is Fed Fund futures. So what it actually is, what it's trading off of, that moved on Friday. And that gave the impression that the odds of a cut moved materially. But no, it was really just a kind of uh, nothing to see here appearance from Clarida as far as the, the market's eyes go. And, you know, it's they're going to be trotting out the same line again and again and again. Manufacturing bad, rest of world scary, uh, U.S. consumers still good. That's been the justification for cuts one, two, and now three. And you know they'll throw in inflation expectations. What about four? Can be worrisome. What do you think? We're gonna, what, what do you think we're, we're thinking about when it comes to four? Is it two this year? Two more this year? It would. It would need two more this year to get to four. What's like the the thing that people have been talking about for a while is what when the Fed says mid cycle adjustment that actually means seventy five basis points. You know this is again based off two episodes in the 90s that may or may not be a good uh, good preview for, for what's to come. So I, I think if the if we're going to start talking about a Fed pause, the Fed has got, got to start talking about a Fed pause more. Because right now, all of the talk on that is coming from the sell side, and it's coming from, again, folks you saw maybe one cut this year, then maybe two. And so, yeah, the Fed's got to take some leadership here in steering the market, or the market will continue to price in a cut. <laughs> Whenever it gets the opportunity. The thing about the mid-90s, when they engineered that mid-90s rate-cutting adjustment, mid-cycle, whatever you want to call it, I'm looking at some of these cycles right now. When they went through these mid-cycle cuts, the Fed funds rate was, what, five, six, seven, eight percentage points, Luke. It was another world. You moved 75 basis points off a much higher base. And now we're talking about 75 basis points when you've literally only got 250 basis points to begin with. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's something that makes an, it's another reason you can't really go apples to apples with this. But it's also, hey, maybe 75 basis points means a lot more coming from there than it does from just just well, yeah, because. That's, yes. that's the point I'm making. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 75 back in the day, that was like just cutting 25 basis points when you yeah. had seven percentage points to play with. Yeah, but, but on the other hand, with a period of low rates for so long, getting additional stimulus out of rate cuts that kind of moves the dial, that might be something you need to. Uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, a corollary there. What role do you think the depreciating dollar will play in their thinking? I think it should be welcomed. I think it's definitely something that it pushes back against sliding inflation expectations because so far the the real story is even though we've had tariffs we have not had a lot of uh, inflation on the good side in the US on the imported good side and that's because the dollar's been the it's been you know the textbook or what is supposed to happen in this situation so i think the weakness in the dollar will be very very welcomed by the fed Luke Keller, sticking with us. Much more still to come. A massive week for earnings in America. 25% there and thereabouts of the S&P 500 reporting numbers through the week. We'll cover that next right here on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Let's talk about Boeing. Boeing is down over 10% over the last couple of sessions. The stock getting absolutely smashed lower on Friday as a result of revelations that some engineers may have been aware 
of problems with the MCAS system, the system that was apparently responsible for a couple of crashes. Numbers are out on Wednesday. Dennis Mullenberg is then going to testify the following week in front of Congress. There is a great deal of speculation about how long he is going to last. There's a big question as well that I think is worth asking. Is Boeing starting to have a material impact on the performance of the U.S. economy? The problems that it is experiencing with the 737 MAX are substantial. This is a major company with a major product that it is not able to deliver to customers. Luke Cara, are we starting to see some evidence of that? I, I mean, you do see from time to time things like, uh, you know, clearly uh, Boeing weakness in the related to the 737. You do see it kind of show up in core durables from time to time. On the other hand, you do see things like the GM strike show up in industrial production from time to time. So I, I do think these are cases where you can have, you know, one big important company that's clearly uh, makes a visible impact in the short term. But in the longer term, I just kind of uh, analogize it to think of all the the talk we hear about you know, Wall Street job cuts. You do hear when retailers are, are going down associated job cuts. And yet in the first Friday of the month, every month, we hear net job additions in the U.S. economy positive. We hear things like that. So I I do think it's uh, it's an important story, but to use uh, John's word, favorite word, very idiosyncratic. I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it's something it's that's moving systemic. the dial this is, this for the U.S. economy. Systemic, this isn't a systemic story. No, no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't see how it could be really. This story, though, for Boeing guy, I'm pleased you picked up on it. I mean, disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. The market, given this stock, the benefit of the doubt for the best yep. part of the last twelve months. The hope is always that the C-suite just kitchen sinks it, comes out with everything, and is very open and honest about everything. And I guess the news of the last 24, 48 hours, 72 hours, really brings up the disclosure issue again. UBS picking up on this point and saying this reinforces the perception of and heightens the potential of incomplete disclosure, which inherently puts more money, trust, and time at stake. If you were hoping that we could move on from this issue, anytime soon i think that took that view took a serious dent in the last couple of days who knew what when and to be honest the buck stops at one desk and that's dennis mullenberg's and i think we're getting to the point now where i think investors and there's still 14 buy ratings out there on buying at the moment it's amazing isn't it it's it, genuinely amazing considering what has happened over the last kind of couple of days um but Only more, two sales uh, yeah absolutely amazing I suspect those numbers are going to go up. But you just wonder, at some point, there has to be accountability. At some point, investors are, go, are going to go, we trusted you and you've let us down. And as a result of which, it is time for a change at the top. Whether that's just the CEO, whether that's enough, or whether it needs to reach deeper into the company is a question that remains to be seen. But I, but I would have thought that Dennis's grip on this company is becoming more and more fragile. He's already had the um, the chairmanship removed from him in order for him to be able to focus on the nuts and bolts. I that could be code for like, you're on a very short leash here, sunshine. It's going to get it's going to get more and more difficult from here. But I think Friday's revelations were absolutely kind of one of the final nails in the coffin. So he, numbers on Thursday, numbers on Wednesday, testimony the following week. Dennis Mullenberg is about to have a very very rough ride. I think the stocks priced a lot of this in. But you kind of you, you kind of wonder whether or not there is a cathartic moment. I, I just wonder if Dennis were to go, how big the pop would be in the stock. Interesting. Where does this leave Airbus? Has this gone on long enough for them to take advantage? No, of No, I don't year? think it has yet. And this is this is kind of the ongoing problem. I think if they were to 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 be unable to get the aircraft back into the air, then I think it would be 
an opportunity. But just the, the, the ability to ramp up a supply chain to be able to up the overall run rate of the number of aircraft you produce is an incredibly hard thing to do. They already stress these supply chains to breaking point. To be able to stress them even more is incredibly difficult. Some suggestion maybe the A220, the, sort of the old Bombardier AC series, could, could take a little bit more. We'll wait and see. But I, it's a, I think it's a massive, massive 10 days coming up for Boeing. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Big week ahead. What a week ahead we've got for you. Bank earnings beginning in Europe tomorrow. Numbers from UBS Wednesday. Earnings from Ford, Tesla, Boeing, Microsoft, plus Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, the CEO testifying before Congress on Libra. Into Thursday. Thursday, really the one to watch for me. U.S. and Eurozone PMIs. Rate decision from the ECB, President Draghi's final news conference, and we'll throw in some earnings from Amazon for good measure as well. That really is the day to watch of the week, Guy Johnson. The earnings, the data, and Draghi's last outing at the ECB. What are you more excited about? I know the answer to this, well, by the way. I just think eight years of President Mario Draghi, I just think, is absolutely huge just to look back on. His tenure, look for the markets. I think the PMIs and Amazon are probably going to be top billing. Nothing's going to happen at the ECB. But just to watch that for one final time, I honestly don't know where those eight years have gone, Guy. They have gone so quickly. They've gone quickly and, and in some ways quite slowly. Like it's this, this, I feel like I've been living this Eurozone crisis on and off for a very, very long time now. Um, it's funny, I kind of see it in, uh, so my, my youngest son was kind of born around the time that the whole Greek crisis was, was kicking off and everything, I, and, and he seems quite big now. Um, <laughs> well, we had a guest on earlier, she's fantastic, Kaylee Koch from Goldman Sachs, and she said, my first was born when this Brexit stuff started, and she said the same thing, and now we're looking for kindergarten. Yeah, and you kind of need that, that slightly sort of uh, alternative way of perceiving these things. I, I think the interesting thing about Draghi's uh, uh, sort of departure is that he's doing it slightly under a cloud, I think. Yeah, big time. Uh, big time. And not for the moves from 2012 into 2015-16 when we first started getting rate cuts, negative rates in 2014, the QE effort of 15 into 16. That's not where the criticism is. The criticism is going too far. And perhaps this last round is the straw that broke the camel's yep. back for a lot of moderates. Uh, not the not the uber hawkish German Bundesbank centric policymakers. I'm I'm talking about here. I'm talking about moderates as well. Even the likes of Benoit Cure. When the likes of Benoit Cure starts to push back against another round of QE, a man that's been a key ally of the president of the ECB, that really gets my attention. And the debate is, guy, that maybe he's gone too far this time around. Yep. Can he kind of can he kind of get all the ducks in line, all the kind of dissenters on board before he departs? I don't know. Christine Lagarde is she capable of dealing with that? I, I think Christine Lagarde is. Everybody sort of talks about her as having this incredible experience. I, I think it's about to be really tested. Oh, massively! Like really tested. When it comes to being the policymaker at a central bank, every word is so heavily scrutinised. Yeah. Because every word has the potential to cause accidents. But and, and given how, how tightly wound the monetary policy approach is at the ECB at the moment, and I've, I've used the word tightly quite, 
quite inappropriately here how loosely wound <laughs> the ECBF <laughs> is at the moment. It only takes one misstep to start making this market think that we're about to get a policy change. But, but uh, I think that's absolutely true, and she's going to have to pick her words very, very carefully. I also think that part of the, the dissent that we're seeing at the moment is – is the is the toddlers back to the children sort of throwing their toys out a little bit just to kind of set the stall a little bit for her oh, yeah, in, like, in terms of what is coming up they're, they're making sure that she knows they're there and i think is, that's what this is what this is about as well this is like when you uh when you have a substitute teacher and you just raise a little hell just to see how much yeah they're they're willing to take before but hey it, it doesn't just go back to just this notion of disagreement this whole the broader context into which this fits is people starting to wonder if the positive or negative sign is what you get when you ease monetary policy from certain levels. It's it's more than a going too far, distorting markets. Because these, these people are at ECB policymakers are better than those kind of seal arguments. It's like, what are the actual limitations of monetary policy and when does it become counterproductive? If you want to frame this in an academic way, that's a question that... Argue, arguably, we've been struggling with since the Bank of Japan went to negative, and uh, it's it's not going to get answered in the in the first few months of Christine Lagarde's tenure. But uh, maybe by the time she's gone, we'll have. I, a, I, an I idea. think I think this debate really starts to play out now, and it plays out as follows. In my mind, anyway, this is what I'm looking for: as these banks across Europe, including the likes of UBS and Credit Suisse, start to charge negative interest rates on their deposit base and we start to see that filter down from the uber wealthy with deposits of north of half a million euros and dollars and numbers that people can't even really get their heads around to just normal people everyday people that maybe have a couple of thousand here a couple of thousand there that have managed to really spend really put together some money and and, and tuck it away as the numbers start to hit everyday people what happens if these negative rates really remain where they are for a number of years. What happens when everyday people start to experience them? Do they double down? I think they already are. Do they double down or do they spend? I think I I would take the huge devil's advocate thing here and people wouldn't notice. I've had up until recently, I I didn't have a bank account that paid savings on a checking in the U.S. and I would have a monthly fee. That's akin to a negative interest rate for me. Europe has an aging population. It, I, there, there are people here that that understand exactly how this is already working. Why do you think there is such pushback in in the richer parts of Europe already? The, the, the transmission mechanism is going to come via the banks, and Europe certainly relies on its banks. But Europe is a nation of bondholders. They're already feeling it. Like, oh, their investment to, to, numbers totally are agree. being squeezed totally massively. Agree, this is I'm, already in the political narrative. But isn't this sent to get, set to get a whole lot worse, Guy? And then can't we finally have a real debate about whether it's working or not? Either these people are going to double down and save more. They're not going to or, spend more money. they're going to spend. Yeah. And if they're not going to spend, then the central bank's got to turn around and say, well, time's up. We tried this for five, six, seven years. It's not worked. Yep. And I think we may be getting to that point fairly soon. I, that, the biggest risk, one of the biggest risks out there appears to be, to my mind, that we are looking at a bond market that is yet to fully price in the idea that actually governments might turn around and go, we're going to spend some money here. And I think that is that's going to be a huge shock to the system as well. And and if central banks are also at the same time reaching the conclusion that negative rates aren't working, then then life's like the, the current pricing looks looks pretty out of well, whack the, the with the that kind of reality. Could be a nice little case study for that yeah. in the coming quarters. Absolutely, I, the guilt market is going to have an interesting little run over the next couple of days. Um, John, let's wrap things up. Look, tomorrow is going to be another massive Brexit day. But as you say, we're building up to a huge week 
A lot of earnings numbers coming through and that, uh, that final swan song from Mario Draghi on Thursday. From John and myself, this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 